Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts and the first in our series dedicated to the nine-episode adrenaline rush that is Sky's TV show Gangs of London. Now, all those episodes have been on Sky and Now TV for a while now, and the show's weekly run has stopped. And with the official announcement this week of Season 2, due in 2022, I figured enough time has elapsed to bring you this series of chats with the show's directors. We're going to start with Gareth Evans, the show's co-creator, along with Matt Flannery, and director of the 90-minute opening episode and many of the action sequences you see in the first three episodes, and Corin Hardy, director of episodes two, three, and four. I sat down with them both over Squadcast because we're all socially distant, we're all acting responsibly, and I asked him about the standout sequences from all four episodes. We had planned to talk for about 45 minutes or so. We ended up talking for about twice that. Now, a couple of notes before we begin. This is a spoiler special, of course, so we do get into it from the off. Major deaths, major sequences, twists, turns, the whole kit and caboodle. But we do not spoil things beyond the end of episode four. So if you've only got that far so far, you should be fine. And of course, if you haven't seen any episodes of Gangs of London, then stop listening to this, highly to your nearest skybox, have a ganders, and then come back and have a listen. Secondly... Corin had a problem on the night with his microphone. So while Gareth and I sound like we're in a studio-ish, hopefully, Corin sounds like he's, well, he sounds like he's on the phone. But I think you can still hear what he's saying, and hopefully after a few minutes, it won't bother you too much. Uh, We haven't recorded our episode 9 chat yet, but I'm reliably informed that he's got a new microphone since, so it should be fine for that. Oh, and if after listening to this, there is anything that you are screaming at me to ask but I didn't get round to it. Believe me, when listening back to this, I know exactly how you feel. Then do DM me any questions I didn't get round to. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter, and I'll see if I can get Gareth and or Corin to answer for a future episode. Oh, and if you're looking for a bit where it's Team Empire giving you our thoughts on the show, well, we're going to bring you that in a separate episode, talking about all nine episodes once these interview specials have finished. Right, that's enough for me. Here's, um, well... Me, talking to Gareth Evans and Corin Hardy. Enjoy. All right, so this is it. This is our Gangs of London super mega jam-packed episodes one to four spoiler special. And I'm joined by the directors of the first four episodes. And in fact, the showrunner. How, what do you, how do you describe yourself, Gareth Evans? You, know, you showrunner, creator, co-creator. What, what's, what's, what's the deal? What, what's your official title? Uh, General Dog's Body. General Dog's <laughs> Body, Gareth yeah, Evans, yeah, yeah. and uh, director of Eps 2 to 4, Corn Hardy. Sidekick and uh, Road Sweeper. <laughs> Sidekick and Road Sweep. Uh, so, yeah, this is, Jesus, guys, we, we, you know, there's a lot to talk about in these four episodes. Uh, so, and we've got some questions as well from listeners. Uh, but yeah. how, first of all, how do you feel now that you're out, they're out there in the world? Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 bizarre. I think, I think both myself and and Corin and then also Xavier will have probably experienced the release of material that we've made in very different ways from this. If that makes sense. So we, we've always been kind of, you know, um, I think we've all sort of had our films screened at like festivals first and uh, and yeah. watched them with a, an audience in a big room together and got that communal atmosphere that that vibe of seeing how it plays to a large large group yeah. of, of people but um and, and then obviously like you know whatever opening weekend means and stuff like that to the films that we've made 
But this is mm. probably like the first time, certainly for myself and I guess also for Corin, where, you know, it's been like three years worth of work just suddenly all just boom readily available for people yeah. to watch within a space of 24 hours um yeah. and the fact that some people are is pretty overwhelming um and and pretty sort of like you know uh humbling really to be honest to see the kind of reaction that's been coming in from the from the show really so yeah yeah it's different it's different because with a with a movie whether it's whether you've gone to a film festival and it's had a slow um, release and, and then eventually become available and then eventually become available at home or whether it's like a you know um, when the nun came out you know it, it obviously didn't go to festivals but there was that sort of sense of release but it still was the people who went out to the cinema to see it which is you know what, what we all love but this was mm. the first time it really felt like it's injected straight into the eyeballs of, of the audience and with the situation we're all in um even more so, everyone was sort of trapped, uh, are trapped at home in a, in a sense, and um, it just felt like we instantly got the, the response. You can just feel the response straight away, and uh, and I guess also because we literally finished making it, just like so close to it appearing on on the screen. So, like Gareth said, for him, like many years of work for me, a couple of years, and then it literally from the minute we finished it, just became available two weeks later. Yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it? We were, we were. I know we had like guys working on the show, as in VFX, color grading, and sound mixing, all the way up until about about a, probably a week and a half before it actually yeah. dropped online. Yeah, yeah. So you know there was that whole period for the first three weeks or so of lockdown. I think it was yeah, yeah first three weeks of lockdown, four weeks of lockdown, mm. where you know all of a sudden you had the the guys at the look doing the color grade the guys in the vfx houses like dupe uh-huh. and 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 my friend my guy andy out in indonesia and in Tanvir and a bunch of the other guys and also for the sound mixing teams they all had to start start to reorganize themselves and figure out their infrastructures in a way that yeah. wherever they could possibly work from home that they could work from home and then mm. when it needed to be just like you know the the absolute minimum people still you know chugging away in the office that they were able to do so and do so safely for those yeah. last sort of two, three week big pushes to get the the rest of the show finished. Yeah. So yeah, it was a massive effort on behalf of them. The la- literally the last thing I did in before the lockdown and the last day in London was to like supervise the final um, bit of sound mix and then like do a, do a final screening of one of the episodes. And it was that feeling of like going into sort of the zombie outbreak territory to, for the sake of the show to like make sure we just did the la- any last bit of work possible, and then everything else for the for the month after that before the release was remote. So all the visual effects um, responses and notes, everyone was then working remotely from their homes. So it was a, mm. it was it was it was a tough deadline anyway to hit, and then it was just like dragged out to, to, to the max with all the workers working 24 hours from home so it was I, I was a lot less brave during the outbreak i was in wales just downloading we transfer <laughs> files <but yeah. laughs> i mean there's there's a couple of things what i want to do is because obviously we've got four episodes to to cram mm-hmm. into this this one episode um so i wanted to talk about specific moments but before that i wanted to talk about three general things uh, the first one is is uh Chopin. Uh, Dirisu, who plays Elliot, and he is just phenomenal. You know, from mm. from my point of view, it's one of those things. It's one of those rare things. Someone like a Colin Farrell or someone like that who just appears on the big on the big screen or small screen in this case, and just you go, where the hell 
Has this guy come from? Fully formed. This is this this is a huge, huge star in the making. Um, you know, and you guys have worked with him throughout this show now. I mean, you know, Garth, you know, and we we talked to the magazine yeah. about how you found him, but can you talk about working with Chopin and and kind of tailoring? Did you tailor Elliot and anything that he did once you realized kind of his skill set? Yeah. So I mean, like. I, I hate I hate saying you know, I, I think the person who, who found him is probably Kelly Valentine Henry, our casting director, who kind of really, you know, she put so many interesting faces in front of us, mm-hmm. um, and she was she was phenomenal across the show. I think she's like a major major part of why the show was such a big success because every single person delivering incredible performances across the show, you know, episode by episode, um, and you know she had originally had Chopin. Uh, um, audition for the role of um, Alex so that yeah. was the initial time I saw Chopin and uh, basically when he auditioned for Alex we loved him for that we thought oh this guy's amazing because his performance was spectacular and everything else this is before we had met Papa who ended up playing Alex um, mm-hmm. and so we were as far as we were concerned we had our Alex and then um, I think Chopin's agent or manager kind of reached out to production was like we want him to play Elliot and at that point, myself and Matt Flannery, the co-creator of the show, we'd never really considered Chopin for it. Because um, I think in, in our head, we thought Elliot was going to be um, a fair bit older, like, you know, another 10, 15 years older, maybe. Because this was like early inter- iterations of that character. And mm. so then we were kind of like blindsided by it. And then we were like, hmm, maybe he would be good. But the problem with casting a role for Elliot was we knew we needed somebody who could do both the drama, but also handle the physicality. So, um, you know, obviously we were leaning more into the drama, but we knew we had set pieces where we wanted to be able to see that guy's face front and center for a lot of those those fight sequences that we had already designed. And so I think, yeah, we, we, we just kind of landed on our feet with him. I think he was uh, he's such an incredibly gifted performer anyway in terms of like the dramatic work that he does across the show. But then with the physicality, he just was so adept at everything. He just picked everything up in a heartbeat, no matter what we threw at him in terms of the choreography. He's one of those guys who can just learn to do anything very quickly. Like, um, he, 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 and you hear this with certain performers, I think, that they can just, I don't know whether it's like mimicking, and I don't mean just acting, but skills outside of that as well, um, sports and, and things. And, and, and actually, um, I mean, from, I mean, so much gets said rightly about his incredible action. And I mean, can you imagine the daunting, um, the daunting realization of getting the job in, in Gareth Evans's show, knowing that Gareth designed these sequences that he's then going to just have to take on and, and perform. But again, he, he really like chameleonized himself into it. And, for, and I, I just got one little anecdote, really. You know, he's, he's incredibly smart and, and intelligent and also very quite quiet. And he would just absorb stuff, take it on. And, and you grew to just be able to rely on him so much as a performer. I knew when I, what I needed to tell him or, or he'd just ask a question if he needed to know anything. One of my favorite kind of small moments was in in episode um, two with the scene when he's, they're sitting around the table in the restaurant before Kinney mm. comes in. Yeah. Elliot's effectively at the back of the room. And he's, you know, we uh, obviously know he's an undercover cop there, but they, they, they talk about, things that he's been responsible for in in episode one with the um um with the welsh kids and stuff and i and, and i got to just doing the chopin close-up which was literally a close-up of his face and his eyes responding to all the different moments that go on in that dinner sequence where they're talking and i could literally watch just his eyes 
for this two-minute take. And I mm. could tell that in, in every part of the story I could read on his face, through his eyes, through his tiny little expression, realisation, guilt, hoping he doesn't get caught. And, and, I, and it was that kind of thing, just like he studies it and then he, he just like absolutely nails it. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's amazing, man. I mean, obviously when, when we did... When we did the ep one, we had those big fight sequences, but then even when we did um like the the, the Elliot and Cole fight, for example, he gives you so much stuff in between that. So he's not just following obviously the the, yeah. the, the, the script and he's not just following the choreography, but he's given you so much stuff. I don't know when we were doing we were doing a rehearsal of like some blocking for the bit when um when um the, the, the girls get rushed into the bathroom for safety and then you know he's sort of there aiming the gun at the wall with all the light pouring through. And just in the rehearsal, Hikyo, because the little, the one little girl, she was quite delicate in, in terms of her sensibilities and stuff like that. So we were treading super, super carefully around her not to get her to be upset or afraid of the situation yeah. and everything else. Um, and so as, as he's doing it, he just, he just like turned around and said to her, like, it's just hide and seek. It's just like hide and seek. And then when he said that to her, then I was like, oh, we should use that. We should definitely use that. And he was just like throwing out these little nuggets, these little pearls. And we were just like picking them up and being like, let's put that in there because that's amazing. And that'll really work. And it'll make the audience connect to him because he's acting like a father would to a little girl in that situation. And, and it was all kind of woven into character. So he had these great moments like that. And, and you know, like the dark gag in, in F1 you know but i had a yeah. dart so that was him like, he, he came up with that you know i don't think that was even scripted so yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had we had a variations of the line i can't remember them all but like when he said though no, but i had a dart so and just let it drop it was like that <laughs> yeah. moment i was trying not to laugh watching the monitor because i just thought it was hilarious and i was like right that's the one that's the one we're going for i think it's the one gag in the whole show isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> like that's your levity, folks. No more. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, no, he was great, and we we all I think the crew all loved him because he was such a gentleman anyway. Yeah. As we were working with him, and you know, you know, when you have like when you have someone like Joe and Chope who are kind of like the the co leads of the show, the yeah. way they behave, the way they react during the set is trickles down to everyone else. You know, yeah. and that's that's the way it kind of works. And we couldn't have been ha- luckier than to have both of those guys on it because. They both treated it with so much professionalism, and then also were very gentlemanly throughout the entire process. And then it just made the whole, the whole, the whole thing just you know coalesced around them. Then, but the mm. whole crew, like when when we were shooting stuff with Chope, everyone said it. Cause we had I had him pretty extensively for the first two weeks of the shoot. We were doing like the stuff with the father, and then we were doing some some of the sort of the action beats with him, and mm. everyone kept saying the same thing. Everyone was like, "Come on, going like this." Oh, you could be the next Bond. You know, it yeah. was like it's the cliche thing to say, but you just feel it because he's got. Yeah that kind of movie star quality. He's got an old-fashioned yeah. movie star quality about him. He's very relatable, very likable, you know, and it, it, it's like everyone kind of loves him and wants to be around him. So he's, he's yeah. just got that thing that you just don't find that often. So, yeah. There's an interesting thing to pick up there as well and that you said that obviously he and, and Joe, you know, Sean and Elliot are the, are the co-leads of the show and they're the heart of the show in so many ways. And, you know, I was checking in with you guys periodically whenever you were making the show, but all I really knew about it was... You know, Joe Cole was in it, and it was about you know picking up the pieces of of a gangster's death. But whenever I first saw the when I saw the first episode, I was really surprised to see uh, Elliot was effectively the co lead, and mm. in so many ways is the heart of the show. Um, and was that always the in, the intention that it would be the story of these two guys uh, and you know entwined in this organization? Yeah, I mean, I like definitely. I know when um, me and Matt first started discussing it, we always knew that we wanted to have that. That, that undercover 
character going on a journey of of you know self discovery of dealing with his own grief and inner turmoil but then also could he be turned could he go rogue that was always something that was kind of interesting to us because it plays within those sort of like crime trope tropes that we wanted to explore within the genre um and you know we had early early iterations of of an ep one where you know we didn't meet elliot as in you know day one of him getting ingrained within the wallace organization we had another version of the script where we were meeting elliot already a few years into his operations already super close to sean and alex there was another version of the script that existed back then and then you know we looked at it and then we pulled it apart and then it felt it's more interesting to go on that journey from the from the birth of it as opposed to something jumping in you know two foot in 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 the middle of a storyline in that if that makes sense that's interesting um, it was it was it was it was fun for us to kind of like to then re rethink uh, our, our our position on elliot and and also to figure out where we do introduce him because in the previous incarnation obviously Elliot was probably like scene three or scene four you know because he would be useful around the preparation for the funeral and yeah. so he was always there and then he would be you know orchestrating you know getting the press away from taking photographs of the other mob bosses as they arrive and all of that stuff he'd be kind of like that functional foot soldier a little bit like what uh, Adrian Bauer became with Mark um, and yeah. so when, uh, but then uh, Elliot, then when we started figuring out a new version of Elliot, where we put him further down the, the rungs of the ladder in order to get him to start from the ground up, then it became, oh, well, what if this two-hander, mm. we don't meet him for like 25 minutes, almost 30 minutes, you know what I mean? What, and, then, and then you get to introduce him in such an explosive manner then where he, he goes from being the guy fishing out money from a drain to being the guy with the key information of, of who can maybe solve the case of who killed Finn and then go mm. on this insane journey of like, the barroom brawl, you know, the chasing of Besmir and into the heart of like this Albanian cafe and into the subterranean lair where he finally finds Jack. So uh, it was this, it was a way then to kind of present Elliot as an almost sort of every man who is thrust into like an extraordinary set of circumstances. And I know that's always been something that I've been fascinated with. Like um, there's a f- Japanese filmmaker. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, his name's Sabu. And um, he, he he's made a load of films in the past. He's a director in his own right. He's also an actor. But all of his films are about sort of like ordinary people thrust into extraordinary circumstances. And there's such a fucking thrill ride. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, deserves way more recognition in the West than he gets, you know. Um, but like it, that kind of journey was something that was interesting to me as the sort of the, the initial touch paper for, for Elliot then. I remember reading the, the first time you sent me the script to sort of give an idea of what the show was and reading the pilot, sort of feature-length pilot episode. And, and again, maybe maybe because I spent time with Sean to begin with thinking, this is this guy's the lead of the show and, you know, he's the, he's the son of the godfather and it's going to be about him. And, and then, you know, like you said, 30 pages in or whatever, like starting to be aware of this other background character that we started to focus on. I remember writing notes as I went, going, you know, there's something more to Elliot, uh, you know, and and it was it was this mystery that unfolds within the overall um, concepts with the funeral and 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 the figuring out who's killed his father, this mm. background character, and then I was sort of like, why are we dwelling so much? Why is he? And then you know, get, becoming fascinated with him, and then obviously having the hook revealed right towards the end that he's a cop, which comes right at the end, doesn't it, of episode one? Yeah. Mm. And I remember when we were preparing to release the, the show, I remember one of the things that me and Matt said from get-go from the very, very beginning, and this is like, you know, while we were still probably writing it, 
when we wrote that thing of like, okay, here's the hook from episode one is the fact that we realized that he's an undercover cop. One of the first things we said when we met with um, Sky talking about it was like, none of your promo materials are allowed to say that he's an undercover cop. No one's allowed to mention anything about police involvement in terms of the show. It's got to be just about gangs. So, you know, whenever they were all the synopsis were saying about, oh, he's a lower level guy that becomes important to Sean, but we never know the undercover cop element. So we wanted that to feel like a surprise for the audience watching it. Because obviously that stuff, as soon as you know that there's an undercover cop element, as soon as there's a bit in a trailer which shows him doing something in a sort of, you know, uh, 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 an unrecognizable manner of a police, you know, pre- procedural element, it would mm. throw it and it would kind of give the game away then. <laughs> um, but but Elliot being the, the co-lead of the show and the heart of the show is, it also leads me to a, an interesting point as well, is that how refreshingly, diverse the show is and how uh, representative the show is as well you have you know so many um, ethnic minorities who are prominent in this and someone sent in a question earlier on I'll see if I can find their name uh, later on but uh, someone sent in a question earlier on saying also that it was refreshing that there wasn't a lot of racism in the show yeah that you know, there are you know, obviously there's you know, Lale and uh, Asif are not friends and don't mm. get on necessarily. But there's not a lot of slurs. There's not a lot of insults in that way. It's just a very very straight uh, straight eyed portrayal of of modern yeah. London. Yeah, I think that was kind of important. I know myself and Matt when we were designing it and we were kind of in the writers' rooms. The the one thing we kind of said a lot was also that thing of let's not let's not touch on certain aspects of criminality because you know that you could obviously do an all-encompassing thing but it didn't feel right with the show that we were doing so like you know first and foremost we didn't want to make a social commentary we wanted to have it be heightened enough to be able to go off on these flights of fantasy and do these big set pieces that could be you know bold and operatic and everything else but then you know in terms of that in terms of like the racism angle that was another thing we didn't want to dwell upon the same way we didn't want to dwell upon um any sense of like homophobia so like you know you know with with Billy's character the fact that you know, the fact that he's gay was never used as a crutch against him it was something that was just like you know not you know it never came into part of the conflict of his character it was just part of who he was yeah um and i think you know like with regards to that you know we 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 kind of we purposefully sort of sidestepped that. We also decided let's not let's not deal within elements of the vice trade when it came to the criminality, because you know there was just certain things, certain subjects, and certain part, parts of that world of that universe. You know, and I'm not just talking about in real life, but also within the confines of it being genre filmmaking that we just weren't interested in kind of dipping our toes into. That you know, mm-hmm. we felt like oh well, we got enough going on in this story and enough going on with these characters where. You know, we don't need to sort of to, to, to step into that arena then. I think also one of the sort of aspects of the show that I love in, in terms of the balance of the sort of gritty, grounded reality and then the heightened genre and the marriage in the middle is that we cast the characters in the nationalities that their characters were in real life. So everyone's pretty much playing um, a certain nationality came from that country and we, you know, we were flying people over um, quite specific choices. Like the guy who played Besmir would be a, a good example. And then, and then using subtitles. So, you know, it wasn't a case of just getting a load of British actors to put on accents. And uh, it just, it sort of added, added a, an, another layer of authenticity that we were then also able to bend within the, the genre 
side of things. Mm. It's interesting you say that because it's like the only the only time I'm aware of it being someone who wasn't actually from their nationality was because um, obviously we had um, Lee Charles, who's this incredible like actor, stunt performer, and fighter who plays Len at the end of of um, episode one and fights against Elliot. Um, and obviously, Len is supposed to be part of a Welsh traveller community. Um, and Lee himself is a scouser. He's a Liverpool fan, Chris, so you'd like him. Um, <laughs> why did you have to kill him, man? Why did you have to kill him? <laughs> now you know why. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, um, but you know, a, a, amazing guy, super nice. But it, it was like, you know, obviously, you know, his performance was with the scouse accent. And so I remember when we were doing ADR, I needed to change, we needed to change his voice to be like Welsh accented. And so when we recorded in ADR and I said, oh yeah, let's make sure we got somebody who's Welsh, please coming in with a kind of a deep voice, gruff voice to so match up. And then um, in came this guy ready to record ADR and he was absolutely not Welsh at all. <laughs> so like a Londoner and then came in and then was like, oh yeah, but I could do a Welsh accent. And then I'm sat there going like, oh, let's see. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you if you can. But it was interesting because like, you know, his accent was kind of good, but then he missed out on some of the sort of like weird little mutations of being from South Wales, how it would be if you spoke in English, like the, the little sounds you just drop and lose or the combination of words, which kind of, they, you know, they come together and make sense if you're from the valleys, but not anywhere else. And so I was having to kind of guide him phonetically then when we were doing the ADR so that he would sound authentically Welsh. So out of all the nationalities that we could like not get, you know, an original of, Welsh was one of the ones that we struggled. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, um, one thing as well, before I get into specific moments from the, the first four eps, um, is that it doesn't have a title sequence, uh, which yeah. I thought was I thought was really really interesting because you know and and, and I'm, I'm semi glad I mean I love TV themes I love TV title sequences uh, but they all seem to be cut from the same cloth. If the theme tune's good enough, it holds me. I'll listen to the theme tune. Make well, through, I offered to write the theme tune and sing the theme tune, but uh, they, they turned me down on that. Gangs <laughs> of London. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was a conscious decision. I know myself and Matt both felt that in terms of, um, A, you're giving away 45 seconds to a minute of your, your episode runtime just with credits, with title cards, but as soon as you do an intro th- to the show. And for us, it's like, they're always fun for the first three episodes, but then when you get to episode four or five, you're just like, oh, can we just can we just skip now? Um, and, and so, you know, and, and also they all, they all they're all really well made, but they all sort of look the same now and so you know i think for us me and me and matt Matt were kind of like very firm in terms of like you know insisting upon uh, it should be bold it should just be quite basic and 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 clean and and you know last no more than like five to ten seconds and then we're back into the story Uh, and and i think it actually like it works really well i I think it it, it actually it keeps you completely invested in the story and the characters and it doesn't let you have a moment to to breathe properly you know what i mean and and Mm. and that's the nature of the show Quite a lot of the well, the structure of it having the sort of pre-title sequence of story intro, whether it was a, you know a mystery or an action set piece, it's very connected directly into the next scene. So you know you get the title appears, but you really need people to join straight on into the story. So if you if you did have a pre-title and then a title sequence, you would have kind of forgotten the importance of what came before. I think. Yeah, mm. it would undo it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting that um, you know, if we can get into some specifics now, some specific moments from the, the from the four eps, um, that if I'm right in thinking, with the exception, obviously, of the first ep, 
that each of the episodes here begins with a flashback. It begins with a little bit of character layering uh, as as well. Um, yeah, you know, it, 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 can you talk about that approach? Yeah. And and Corin, you you know, there was that moment yeah. in um, episode four where uh, it's um, Sean listening to. He goes back into Finn's office, and yeah. there's a transition that I wondered if you were doing yeah. if he actually did it in real time. It's a transition from the past yeah. to the present. Absolutely, we did. That was a real fun one to do. I mean, we always look for ways of, you know, visually interpreting um, interesting mysteries unfolding and, and using kind of techniques and hopefully not being too sort of over the top or um, for no good reason. But uh, yeah, it was in the script that, you know, Sean walks down in the middle of the night and can't sleep and he hears the echoes of the voices of his family and we flash back to an undisclosed time, probably sort of, uh, I don't know, was it like 10 years or five years before maybe? And uh, so I thought it'd be nice to do that in real time. So we did have, it was it was an interesting kind of uh, jigsaw to figure out because it involved Joe Cole having to shave all his facial hair off that he'd had for the whole show. Um, so we had to do that uh, section right at the end of that block in order to give him enough time to regrow it for the next block. So once, once we got to that moment, it, and it was in it was in the space of the the afternoon that we had to shoot that sequence, and that was one with Cole Meany as well. Um, yeah. You know, we had Cole Meany for limited time. So actually, that scene, that whole scene that we shot, was one of those typical moments that you sometimes find yourself in, where you go, you've anticipated you know, having uh, a week to film this amazing scene that's kind of quite complicated and has a lot of characters and has Cole Meany there. And actually you get one one hour and 40 minutes at the end of the day when you're absolutely caning it to get it all. And it involved this, what I really wanted to preserve was this unbroken shot, seeing Sean Wallace walk in, look around the room and then have in the same shot, the camera passes over and we introduce everyone being there and the lighting changes at the same time. Um, and then we turn back around and Joe Cole walks in aged, de-aged by five years. So there was, um, you know, a lot of little jiggery-pokery going on. <laughs> it's pretty damn cool. But was it was that always the intention, I guess? Because uh, actually thinking about it, even the first episode begins with a flashback of sorts because it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a flash forward, weirdly, isn't it? It, 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 it yeah. starts with a flash forward and then goes back, oh, yeah. then catches yeah. back up. <laughs> yeah, you know, as all good things should start with, you know, very confusing timelines. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I think it was. Um, it, it wasn't a sort of. I don't think it was an intentional thing. It just kind of fell that way. Um, we always wanted to start with cold openings we always wanted to feel like you weren't 100 sure where you were in a sequence we didn't want to kind of like start and then be like tell the audience right this is where we are you know we wanted to have to kind of like search for the information and, and find it out as they were being presented with the information so you know i know uh, you know in in episode one it, it was just it was it was the idea of introducing the city first and foremost, but then telling the audience that it's all skew if it's all upside down and there's certain landmarks that are missing, mm. um, and then oh, now we're in the POV of somebody we've never met before hanging upside down, and now we're meeting. Oh look, there's Joe Cole. What's he going to do? Why has he got that you know tanker full of petrol and a light and a matches? You know, <laughs> so it's like you know it, it was it was it was a way to kind of like to throw the audience off balance, I think, in a way. And so you know, I, I know you know, um, Corin and in ep two you could talk more specifically about yeah, like yeah. the flashback sequence with the kids yeah. and stuff like that um but yeah that was that was certainly the plan 
that was one of the first sequences you pitched me when we met in that Japanese restaurant in Soho when you told me about you're doing this show and you kind of like teased me with about four kind of set pieces or openings to the show and I remember originally it was I remember um, Gareth pitching me this opening which was going to be on the beach and it was like the the family home on, on the coast and involving uh, the, the the like what looked like a family walk down to the beach, and then uh, the father bringing them across and seeing this bucket, um, and then having a little word with his son, and then revealing when you lift the bucket, there's a man buried up to his neck, originally in the sand. And and for production logistics, although we totally explored the version of the beach, which would have been great, we had to um, alter that a little bit, so so it became a forest. But I, I it was some one of the things I loved originally hearing about the show and then also being a part of and was these mysteries unfolding in these cold openings like you say so you're revealing elements that lead to other elements that ultimately add up to something when you when you come back to the the future effectively so in this case we're learning about sean's um upbringing slightly unique upbringing uh as the son of marion and finn wallace and how his brother um played a a role and, and what caused his brother to also go the way he did. I think we all, we also, I mean, the interesting thing was in two, we had, we had sort of like a double cold opening, didn't we? Yeah. Because yeah, then yeah. it was like, it went from the flashback then, the and then cows. it went into a bunch of cows yeah. in the back of a truck. And I, right. I, rem- I remember talking to you about that scene and not being able to get that image out of my head where I was like, it yeah. should just be a fucking shot of cows. And they're looking yeah. right down the lens for about like 10 seconds. We don't know why we're looking at them. And then all of a sudden the thing's going to explode and it'll flip over and all that. And I remember, I remember just like, you know, sort of crowbarring in this you know, conviction in the, in the writer's room being like, it'll be amazing. It'll be incredible. It'll be, it'll be the hijacking of drugs, but from cows. And it was just, you know, it, it just, yeah, it's it seen us when we were there shooting it it was just really really weird experience and to be like oh okay this is what we're doing today (laughs) i think we borrowed the cows off you didn't you you got the cows first because you had them for the abattoir i mean technically i borrowed them off ridley scott so they're they're um they're they're cows pulled from the mold of ridley scott's uh um oh shit what's the movie that he did uh, with with orlando bloom kingdom of heaven yeah the kingdom of heaven cows (laughs) <laughs> so apparently because because we, we were I, we obviously always in this show tried to do things practically with effects and stunts and um you know how, how how you can get the most out of uh in this case uh, you know for the abattoir sequence i needed a load of slain cows in, in different sort of uh before and after and then i knew that gareth was going to do the um the cow sequence in wales so we figured out we could get a lot of use out of cows but we had to very carefully budget to uh to find it turns out Ridley Scott created these kind of half cows, prosthetic half cows that are lying down. There are basically what's interesting is they're all the same cow that were all identical that had all fallen over on their right hand side. But we, which, which when you contemplate, you think, oh, so everyone's going to notice, but actually you rearrange them and then you duplicate them with the visual effects and all that, and no one notices. <laughs> that was that was the interesting because I didn't know that they were in half and then when we got them from you guys and then we were starting to fill up a truck with them then it was that thing it's yeah. like it's like playing Jenga with cows it was like yeah, oh exactly. fuck which way are they going to face now in order to yeah. get it to work right <laughs> you could kind of flop them over each other and reverse their heads and all sorts of stuff so you start off in terms of the the kind of the cold opens and whatnot I mean you, you start off with, with Sean Wallace 
<laughs> murdering a guy in cold blood. You know, statements of intent go. That's pretty much that's up there. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that that almost didn't happen in in Ep One because um, I know production got cold feet on the idea of having something that transgressive to open the show with worrying yeah. about what it would do to a character that we're going to be spending an awful lot of time with across the entire duration of the show. Mm-hmm. But then, um, you know, and, and I'll be honest, like it got me spooked as well because the more and more it got argued at, the more and more you start to be like, you know, because with everything, like you take every note with a pinch of salt and then you try to process it. But I started worrying, oh, crap, are people going to just turn against Sean straight away from the get-go? And then like, how, how are we going to build that relationship back up? And I got to credit um, Matt, uh, Matt Flannery for, for just sticking to his guns because he was the only one that was kind of like, this has to be the way the show opens. Like, you know, we can't not open it any other way. So he was like adamant and sort of like, you know, basically put his foot down. I'm so glad he did because, you know, it, it was a real iconic way to to kickstart everything off then, really. But yeah, it almost wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> almost didn't happen. And, uh, you know, just, just kind of we'll flit around between the, the, the four episodes now, the first four episodes in terms of, you know, sequences to talk about. And um, in, a, in a really interesting way, you know, I want to start with the end of episode four because the last 10 minutes of that episode are just absolutely fucking berserk. And <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's just bonkers. I, I watched, I, I watched the show with my wife, Fala, and we were just clutching each other, screaming at the screen with yeah. every, every single development because, you know, you know, as, as Elliot throws himself into harm's way, his heads are exploding left, right, and center, and then you get back to the house and it gets even crazier from there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, can you, can you talk about, about finishing F4 in that way with that, that bloodbath? I mean, first of all, it was, it was going to be the last episode I did. So I, I remember when I read the script and I was going to do two, three, and four, and it was a real chance to do, do do a set piece because obviously Gareth is doing a lot of the action through the show and I like please let me have this one <laughs> I love it I really want to do this one um, and uh, and I, for me it was a counter to the the gypsy massacre in uh, at the end of episode two because it was like that was like Sean and the Wallace might um, mm. you know just absolutely massacring a group of people in a really violent way and he's quite arrogant and he's quite um sure of himself and in, and in an episode four things get as close as they do in the whole show to sean kind of being in control and things going his way and it looks like things might he might be all right he might be able to get through this so um it was i i love this this script and, and the way it unfolded you know with, with with the lead up to what ultimately is kind of like two sort of set pieces if you like that i wanted to make it feel like one kind of unbroken progressively more and more relentless and more and more tense sequence as you say the sort of kind of from the middle of the episode when Elliot's getting tested I just sensed yeah. there was a spiral it was like a spiral like a mixing pot so the episode it was one of the episodes that began you didn't really know where it was going for the first half and you introduced new characters this biker gang the pigeon man and you sort of like one and Elliot's getting tested in the middle by by Mark and, it, and I I enjoyed the fact that it was one of those where you're like, where's this going? How's this going to, you know, are we getting further apart? And then everything kind of just becomes connected and, and starts to mix together into this. And, I, and I, actually, when I was reading the script, I was listening to different playlists and, I, and an M83 track came on, which is from the um, Oblivion soundtrack. 
and it's mm. called um, I'm Sending You Away. And, it, and it's incredibly emotional and it just builds and builds and builds. And as I was reading it, I got to the scene around the dinner table and Elliot's shot and he's bleeding out and the family's trying to help him. And I got really emotional and I just remember thinking, this has to be like really emotional, but like you can't, you can't breathe because you don't know. And then there's an, another attack on Sean. And, you know, I mean, it just doesn't let up. And, um, and, and also felt that the music kind of was almost like lifting you out of his body. So I, so I kind of wanted to combine this tense lead up to the, the, the standoff in the alley with Luan, go into a, a, a sequ- an action sequence that I thought it has to be different to, to what we've seen before and what Gareth's done and, you know, have its, have its own identity. <clears throat> so we really wanted to set it in a geographic location, like an alleyway that you can't get out of, like a kind of uh, an alleyway of death. Where if you, they, they have the meeting in the middle of it, but once the shooting starts, the only way to live is to get out out of it, um, mm. and 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 the idea of the red laser being like a kind of death beam. The minute if it passes over you, your your head is going to explode. Um, <laughs> and and you know, kind of then obviously genre wise, being you know having having little inspirations from like Paul Verhoeven and, and John Carpenter, and um, having the create the feel of Chinatown and and the smoke in the alley. Um, but then the other th- the other fact was actually in that whole sequence from the alley to the end, you get almost all the main characters in the show, all of the family members are present. There's not any other sequence in in the whole show really where they're all present throughout. In, in, you know, including characters like Mark, who you've sort of seen, and he's become an absolute nightmarish character. So I wanted to make sure he got a send off that was sort of fit for one of the sort of prominent villains in a way um and and set the danger zone by having his head literally explode onto sean at the start of the sequence so you knew this is what's going to happen to anyone who gets <laughs> comes in the way of this sniper um and then obviously having elliot get hit um we, we wanted to keep it very much in the perspectives of, of the characters and not really reveal the shooter, per, not really reveal the identity or pretty much see him much. Just know that this red light, if it falls on you, kind of predator actually, isn't it? That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and then, like, then it goes into the sort of, you know, back of the seat reservoir dogs in the car, bleeding out, trying to keep alive and back into this dinner sequence. So, I mean, again, it was, Tribute to the to the writing and and the and the possibilities in these episodes that had these sort of emotional sequences that I really wanted to sort of try and maximise and and then doing the dinner sequence I mean it was sort of like the the schedules we had to make the show were incredibly tight and we were trying to be really ambitious in in everything we did and and it was I just thought to try and cover this conventionally with lots of cuts to the different reactions of all the different characters. I know I had one day to film this dinner sequence. <laughs> I, had, I had one one day to do the drama, like the stuff sitting around the table talking and stepping up and then, and, and all the other stuff in the Wallace house that was in that. And then one day to do this whole sequence at the end. So, and, and I just thought there's something about this. And I'd been in working in that house the geography, although it's quite tight, it had this sort of geography that you could connect things up. So the combination of that, this this M83 track and this spiraling idea was like, let's try and do our version of like a one shot that connects all the members of the family in that one moment 
um, with trying to save Elliot's life, with Elliot having visions of his son, with another relentless attack on Sean's life, and then had this idea of a kind of, I'm going out, this is my last episode, so I want a final image that's almost like going to literally reflect back on the state of the family at the end of episode four being absolutely fucked and fragmented um, in the mirror with the bullet hole in it. So it was sort of... um, I just wanted I wanted to see if I could create something which would kind of hold your breath for an amount of time so that when that credits came and the music took you off, you'd sort of hopefully realise you hadn't breathed for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, only took breaths to yell obscenities at the TV. That's... that's <laughs> I mean, I did that most of Daryl's uh, episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, sorry, I remember really quickly when... When you were talking about wanting to do that sequence as a one, because yeah. we had we had just come out from filming. Our last thing we filmed was in that Wallace house, yeah, and yeah, that yeah. house was a beautiful house, but a fucking nightmare to film in because yeah. everywhere you went, you were bumping into people. You know what I mean? There was yeah. just there was just, you you would use one room. And yeah. then the rest of the house would be like, you know, oh, okay, this is where the monitors are. This is where the light and rigs are. And stuff yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so stuck all the way through. So yeah. I remember when you said about doing it as a one, yeah. I was like, oh shit, that's ambitious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember at the time we were all kind of like, wow, that, <laughs> you want to see that. I think in my head, you know, when I was imagining it, storyboarding it, I was like moving the walls further apart yeah. for myself and thinking I'd love to do a shot where the camera goes right up through the ceiling. And then of course, we're, we're realizing we're in that house. If you can picture the, you know, that sequence, Chris, there's, you've got the, the cast and, and, you know, maybe there's, there's like six or seven of them in that room. Uh-huh. But then you've got this amazing dance going on where, I mean, there's two camera operators because they're having to pass the camera physically to each other over the table and over Chopin and over them and, <laughs> and move it around. Um, you've got the sound department with the booms, you know, at least two or three of those guys. Um, and, and then there's probably about 60 crew members outside that room waiting to pounce to come in to do the makeup, check the microphones. There's a guy sitting under the table pumping blood, special effects guy. So, uh, and then, and then you know, I'm around the corner with the monitors and uh, it, it was like a Jenga game. And actually, I think we only caught, our, in, in post, I only had to paint out our reflection once in the whole thing. It was like a ballet. And it was just, you suddenly see the sound guy charging out the way. <laughs> but, um, it was, uh, and, and I mean, I, I got like, four hours the day before with some extras that i hired to block it out on an iphone and then we and then we had to shoot it and uh and also martin the dop who's my guy who's you know phenomenal and never ever like every challenge nothing's too great for him and he's really fit and he climbs mountains and runs and he's you know he's a dutch guy with a lot of endurance i'd never seen him i mean he shot the halo as well um by the end of that day the last shot was just walking slowly towards that mirror to get a, a reflection of them, right? Mm. And I've never seen it. We, we are, I mean, we did maybe, I don't know, six takes or whatever of that. And he's walking and he's having to hold the camera out like this. And I just sort of could see the camera just slightly juggling. And it, we got it, but it wasn't quite right. And I, and I, I said, we've got to do one more. And he just looked at me like, because his arms were like falling off. He's, oh, holding, he's holding the Alexa camera. He's held it all day for 12 hours and he's been passing it over the table and back and everything was very physical. It was all just hand, handheld, everything. So, and, uh, and literally that last shot and he's walking towards the mirror, the one that you use. 
And then I called Cut, and he's just like, fuck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, Karen, I don't know if you feel the same, but like, you know, we, we, you know, we spend all day having to hold a coffee cup or, or you know, a cup of tea. Like, you know, we never complain about that. You know, I have, a, I have an assistant to hold my cup. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but with a curly straw. <laughs> yeah. It strikes me as well that each episode, um, is kind of built along those same lines. It's it's built to peak. It's built to yeah. come into a, a a mad crescendo. And uh, you know, ep two has you know, well, we'll have them talked about ep one in terms of you know the pub fights halfway through. But you have that incredible sequence with with Lee, as you say, with the with the meek lever. But you know, episode two has the attack on the traveler camp. Yeah. Episode three has the insane Elliot Cole fight, and then ep four is you know might have been responsible for my premature heart attack at the, <laughs> you know, as well. Um, yeah. So, you and know, then, can you, and then can you talk about- an entire crescendo, the entire episode. <laughs> it starts at a crescendo and then <laughs> moves yeah. on from there. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, can you talk about that, about like structuring an episode of TV, which is, you know, obviously different from the things that you've done in the past, both of yeah. you, you know, in terms of structuring feature films so, to naturally, you know, reach that peak. I think I think we looked at it from the perspective of we were making nine films in a yeah. way, and it was yeah. so in in a way you kind of you want each one to end really strongly and and I've always felt that in in the films I've done as well it's that you know you've got to end with something really strong whether it's something that's visceral or something that's emotional you want to have mm-hmm. the audience going away from it while the credits are playing where they mm-hmm. just sit and sit in that moment for a bit. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. we didn't want people to be like, you know, straight away, he, here we go, hit the green button to play the next episode. We want them to just be like, <gasps> now let's breathe yeah. for a bit before you're ready to go on the next journey or the next adventure. And so it's a weird thing in a way, because for me, and I don't know if you feel the same, Karin, but it's almost like as much as I love hearing the idea of people wanting to do like a binge watch of the whole thing in like 24 hours, I can't help but feel like, the stuff is so intense. The content is so like, you know, like strong and, and powerful. But really you want to be able to stretch that out over a couple of days, you know, or if not over a couple of weeks. So yeah. in a way, I quite like the traditional broadcast uh, of the episode, like week by week. Um, cause there's just, cause you know, that, that was the whole design of it originally. We weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't like planned from the get go that it would all drop at once. So, you know, we struck those episodes to be like, Oh, I'm going to leave you with something so tantalizing by the end of each one that you have to tune in the next week and you have to come back and keep joining this adventure. I, then. Yeah, I love that. I, I hope to, I, I still prefer it when they release shows like one episode a week, like what I did with Game of Thrones and where you, you it becomes that kind of real occasion almost. Um, I don't know if that's still the plan in the US to do that. or, or I what, think it is, but, yeah. Uh, but I, it, it was really, um, like Gareth said, it was, I, 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 for me, you know, this was my first TV show. It was your first TV show. I think it was Xavier's. Um, and it was, there was a nice sense of, if I can speak for myself anyway, sort of nice sense of naivety at this is how we're going to do it. And, and like we're, we're sort of three filmmakers and we want this to feel like nine feature films. And the structure of the episodes and the season has, has you know, within it, these, these rises, these crescendos, these set pieces, but they're also rhythmically structured so that you can't really get a handle on where it's going or, or whether you've reached the peak or um and, and and when i was watching the episodes back um 
I was really conscious of imagining if I was watching this show, would I want to watch the next episode by the end of the one I was watching? And I, I felt confident that if you were watching it for the first time, you would you you wouldn't be able to not watch till the end of it. Hopefully, and it seems like uh, that's happened because people have it's been the most binge watched show on Sky and things like that. So. I mean, it's one of those things where uh, we could only watch one episode at a time because we couldn't take it. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it took us, genuinely is why it took us uh, so long to uh, to get to ep nine. It was just like, you yeah. know, should we go in? Should we go in for the next one after you know after ep four? <laughs> and knowing what I knew about ep five because Gareth, you know, had told me about yeah. it and you know right. and, show, and show me a little bit as well. And I was like, I don't think we could. I can't go into it again. We need we need to we need to just take a moment to chill and come to terms with the possibility that Elliot may be bleeding out because I wasn't sure. <laughs> whether he would yeah, come back yeah. or not but uh yeah it's did you consider also then uh, after ep six kind of maybe not going back ever again <laughs> <laughs> no, no 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 spoilers but yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was the one i was scared when i got the script and i read up six i was like thank god i'm not doing this episode man i'm so glad that we're doing this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, we're going to have uh, Xavier on for another episode as well, where we talk about six, seven, eight, and we're hoping that Corn yeah. will join us for that one as well, so we can talk about that yeah, in yeah. depth uh, in a future episode. But, uh, but just to talk about some of the uh, the things that happen in these episodes as well, and it, you know, it's not to dwell too much on the action, but Gareth, I mean, episode one has two amazing action sequences. Mm. One is the pub fight, and two is the uh, the, the meat cleaver massacre. The one man massacre. Uh, can you can you talk about about those sequences and uh, where they came from? Yeah, um, I, I can I can definitely tell you where like the pub fight came from. The the idea of the pants and the Wellingtons a little bit less because I'll be giving you too much of an insight into my psyche. Um, but when, when it came to the um, it came to the pub fight. You know, uh, there's there's a preconceived notion of like what a show like Gangs of London is going to be like, and I think a lot of people with expecting it to be a load of cockneys and a typical London boozer, you know, um, and so you know, knowing that that was going to be a preconceived notion of what the show would be, we decided that when we were going to do our first set piece that it was going to be set exactly in a London boozer. We were like, kind of like, well, let's just address <laughs> it head on, and yeah. and and um and so. You know, we we were able to cast um, uh, David Bradley, who plays Jim, uh, who's the most like amazing person I've ever worked with. He's such a nice, such a gentleman. It was incredible. He was so much fun to work with. But obviously, like Jim's character represents that sort of trope of the genre that we were going to be leaving behind. And so it was yeah. kind of like a purposeful thing in a way. It was like, well, let's introduce this part of the culture that people are expecting to be in the show, but then let's never meet that ever again. Let's never mm-hmm. go back there ever again. And so. You know, it was like, well, let's put it in a pub, and then, but what can we do differently? Well, look, it's the funeral of a mob boss, so um, there's lots of gang members who are all being holed up inside this one pub, and so you know, let's 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 do away with the logic of oh, there's smoking bans in the city and in pubs. They'd have ashtrays out. You know, all of these guys are not going to just suddenly abide by the rules and the laws and stuff like that. So I was yeah, like, all right, well, look, let's um. Let's find things which are very typically sort of like British in a way. So that big, thick, chunky glass ashtray. Now let's use it as a weapon. Let's use it in a unique way that the audience are going to be completely, you know, blindsided by. And then let's let's use a let's use a play in dart. But um, you know, talking about like influences in films, it was RoboCop. You know, it was the the spike in the in the fist in RoboCop. Yeah, yeah. Why if we use the dart like that and punch through uh, all comers? Uh, and it was and and the thing is with the pub fight, it was designed to be 
the first time that I, you know, first, probably the first time since I moved back to UK where I was doing a scene like that. Because, um, you know, in Apostle, we did fights, but they were horror film fights. Mm. They weren't martial arts infused action scenes. And so um, being able to do a scene like that, um, it felt like, okay, well, the first one needs to feel like a roller coaster ride. It has to be like visceral, but fun. So we're going to grab you by the scruff of your neck and drag you through that pub, like as if you're being pulled along by Elliot. Um, and then it's going to end up in this chase sequence. And then, you know, we have this. Um, little gag where the three kids that were playing football are like trying to jump over looking over the wall to see what Elliot's up to um, as he's chased Besmir down to the bottom and that I have to give credit was um, one of our stunt team Chris Webb it was his idea to put those kids up on the wall and this is one of the great things I love about when we design these sequences is that like you know there's a misconception in the idea of oh well all they'll come up with is just how to punch and how to kick but they think of everything and so when we're like figuring out oh Elliot's going to walk up to Besmir now Chris is the one saying, "Oh, what about those three kids that were playing football? Like, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they be interested? Wouldn't they like try to look over the wall and see what was going on?" And as soon as he said it, it's just like something just clicked, and I was like, "100 percent, that's exactly what's going to happen." Yeah. And so you know, it's like getting that kind of those contributions really helps not just like the action, but then build the world around it, and then also it added levity in the moment in that scene that you know would not have been there otherwise. Um, and so that, that, you know, that was the first scene. But when it comes to the Len fight, the, the, the Meek Cleaver, Pants and Wellingtons fight, um, that was obviously a tonal shift. And that was us wanting to play, play with this show can also take you into like the horror genre. Um, you know, it wasn't like yeah. a typical gangster thing. This was like an oppressive atmosphere. It's almost like the, you know, the, the, the Michael Myers stalker character coming after his victim, coming after his prey and not letting him try to escape either side of him. And it's that thing of like, there's, there's no escape from this. So, you know, the only thing you've got is a mattress to defend you from a meat cleaver. Um, and so it was like this thing where I just felt like that fight when you watch it as well, it's a lot slower it's a lot sort of like it's, it's less sort of like dynamic it's more about relentlessness and and mm. and the, the the threat on every single inch of that space um and obviously ending in a, a pretty uh strong death for 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 poor old len <laughs> let's just put it that way so yeah i mean they, they were two they were totally two very very different things but it was giving the audience a sort of a glimpse and an insight into just where the show could go across the season then. So within that one episode, you got to see a wide range of different styles, tones, genres, and influences then all coming, all bubbling together into into one big mix. There are other things as well to talk about in terms of, you know, the the episode three advances a couple of key relationships as well. It advances the idea that, you know, Elliot and Shannon are getting involved and there's Mm -hmm. something there. There's a real spark there. There's also an interesting interesting hint at something with with uh, Sean and Lale as well yeah. and Lale becomes more prominent in episode 3 yeah. which I, I think is interesting how you you're slowly mm. but surely broadening out the scope of the of the cast yeah yeah I mean it was kind of her episode in, in some ways and, and, and tracking how she um, operates and uh, all, you know tying in with Again, a bit like what we're saying in episode four, you have these different storylines and different mysteries unfolding and realize that they come together and they're connected through Sean. You know, when he, at the start of the episode, they're deciding who, who's going to deal with Lale. And he, he says, I'm going to deal with Lale. And then Elliot and Ed go off to try and deal with Lale and, and things become entwined um, and bringing uh, Sean and Lale together. And then I guess... Uh, unexpectedly Sean uh, 
has, has, has articulated this in order to be able to get her to work for him. Um, and that and that sort of sequence at the airstrip, whilst it wasn't a sort of fight set piece, was quite a sort of undertaking to, you know, uh, we were out there all night for a couple of nights. We had a vertical rain and fire and a real Boeing 747. And, um, and, and I, I just like their performances were so powerful. I felt that night, it kind of dictated that coming together of characters in a way. Um, you know, the, 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 the shots of them when they come closer together with the fire behind them, that was real rain largely. We just added some for continuity. And um, the way Joe performed it and the way Nage's performed it just made a complete, uh, real kind of magnetic moment between them that um, set that up. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you've also got the, uh, the, the Elliot Shannon thing as well, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. And, um, you know, and obviously that, that grows and deepens as, as the show goes on. Where, where mm. did that, where did that come from? I think I think initially we talked about the idea of we we knew from the get go when we were designing Elliot's character, um, you know all about his backstory, all about the fact that he had someone and that you know he had a wife and child and he lost them both, and that he was you know ignoring the grief and ignoring it by diving headlong into work, um, and and into pretending to be someone else. And that was one of the themes that we were always interested in from the get-go. It was one of the earliest things that we discussed when, you know, myself and Matt were designing Elliot as a character was this idea of, you know, when you when your job and your life depends upon you pretending to be someone else completely, can you then forget about what was the real you? Can you forget to grieve people that, you know, and, 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 and what is that like when you have that unresolved, uh, you know, sadness bubbling away under the surface? And so it, it allowed us to create conflict between himself and his father, and with his father sort of like, you know, complaining about the fact that it was the, the, the carer that had to take him to the graveyard, not, mm. not Elliot. Mm. Um, and, and so then with Elliot's sort of burgeoning relationship with Shannon, it's almost kind of like a second chance at regaining something that he'd lost. And so, you know, it's almost that thing of it being that, you know, she was a place of convenience at first, like an opportunity for him to work his way further into his investigation. But the more he gets to know about her, the more he actually sort of scratches beneath the surface, the more he actually finds himself genuinely falling in love with her. Um, And then when you've got like a relationship that started off on a lie, that's built up on a lie, the, all the way through that show then, all the way through that relationship, no matter how much it builds, no matter how much it starts to feel real for both characters, the audience are always going to wait for that one moment where it might pop. And so you end up having not just a, a, a romantic sort of subplot, but something that feels imperative to his investigation, feels imperative to is his cover going to get blown. And so there has this underlying tension then, no matter how sincere, no matter how heartfelt the emotion might be there's that little underlying tension that sits right beneath it that kind of makes it feel even more loaded and and then obviously you know thankfully to the the performances from both Chopin and Pippa like I mean they ooze chemistry in their scenes together like you know they're 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 magnetic and you can't take your eyes off them and so then you know every little gesture every little sort of look or or touch it just feels like electric between the two of them I I need to say something about that uh, magnetism from behind the scenes if I could suggest one little anecdote that happened in episode three 
we had this scene where to, she has to pick up the he has to drive her with the rug to the to the apartment, and um, so I knew I had my first kind of intimate sequence, which whilst it doesn't go into some a full sex scene, it, it, it involves two actors coming together, and I want it to be as genuine as possible, but also for them to feel comfortable, you know, and it and it, and it needs to lead in through a scene that could potentially played out a bit ridiculously with them bringing a rabbit rugging and and putting the rug out on the floor together and kind of coming together closely so we i discussed it with them and we went through it and um and it was shot at night in this in this beautiful um, apartment in london but i had the idea sometimes we'd play music to, to help atmospheres so i i said look you know guys i think it, if you're up for it i'm going to put some music on just to like help us all kind of get into this um find the moment and I'd been listening a lot to the beautiful soundtrack of a Beale Street Could Talk. Incredible soundtrack. You know, I, I, uh, it, it, it's just so sort of moving. And I felt, you know, this would be a good atmosphere to just like very gentle and genuine. So I, I had some speakers. Same thing. We were really up against it. Probably only had an hour to shoot or, or half an hour at this point. Um, and, I, and I was playing. So I, they said, yeah, let's do some music. And, and I, I played that. Bill Street could talk and I was watching and I was just thinking this is magical and, and, and they went together and uh, and then after the take we, we had a quick chat and Pippa who plays Shannon I said you know was that good was that okay with the music you know we'll do some without music and they uh, both kind of looked at me and they're like can we put Sonic on ourselves <laughs> I said <laughs> yeah sure you know thinking like what 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 could be more moving than this Nicholas Brutal she goes can you play this and it's a song called Panty Wetter, <laughs> which I can't remember the name of the artist, but if you Google Panty Wetter, and it's this real, like, lewd... Don't Google that. <laughs> and, 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 and it got stuck in my head throughout after this, because then we did take off the tape with this, and it was... Uh, and, and to credit them, they, they <laughs> it worked really well, and it got them into the right place. <laughs> but, uh, the last time so, I um... <laughs> Panty Wetter is by Trey Songs, and uh, the I'm your panty wetter. I'm your panty wetter. You ain't got to take him off. Just pull it to the side. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> anyway, so that that's what went behind the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's <it>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gonna be my new soundtrack. Panty wetter, amazing stuff. Uh, so then, just a couple of last things to, to talk about. I mean, in episode three, you do a really interesting thing in that you introduce this this new threat, Cole, the mysterious, <laughs> terrifying Cole, and then you kill him within the space of a, of a single episode. Um, was that always a plan? Can you tell us about Cole and where he came from? Was there an idea to maybe keep him around at any point? Nah, he was always gonna die. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fuck that guy. We, we we knew we wanted to have like some cool um, character that we could kind of introduce and kill off within the space of this episode. I mean, it, it actually weirdly the 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 actor who plays Cole Gordon Alexander, um, yeah. he's uh, he's a stunt perform stunt man martial artist and an actor as well. So he kind of fills ticks every box that you needed from a role like that. Um, and we 
when when I was designing that sequence with Jude and the boys, uh, we had Gordon come in and shoot the previs with us. This was before he'd been cast in the role. We had him come in and shoot the previs. We did the whole sequence with him from beginning to end. We just like you know put him on the books for a week. I think it was it was like five mm-hmm. days or something or other. And we just shot that sequence out. Um, you know as we usually do, shot by shot, cut by cut, and. Um, when we had the sequence done, I think I think I th- cause I think initially, Corin, you can correct me if I'm wrong, this because mm. we you were looking at like okay, well, who could we get to play that role? Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. and I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, you gotta give this guy a shot because we yeah, know we yeah, can yeah. do the action. And it was that thing of when you have two, if you have two actors in a scene fighting each other, you really don't want to have to have two doubles at the same time because then you can't yeah. you can't show one of them on 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 with the camera. No, it was exactly. I I, I remember reading it and, and I loved this character Cole and I loved this the fact that he kind of comes in immediately becomes the most terrifying kind of character you've yet met. <laughs> and and then by the end of it, he's not around anymore. And it, it reminded me of like Wayne Grow out of Heat or something like that, you know, some kind of real oh, yeah. um, nasty piece of work. Um, and I had the sort of image of him in this cat with these sort of slightly 60s brown shades and this denims. And, and, and yeah, I, I was immediately like, oh man, who could play this? guy and, and, and had some ideas and was speaking with Gareth and it was that kind of it was that you know I guess you faced it with, with heavily uh, action sequences with heavy stunts it's like you would get a, a, a you know a brilliant stunt man to, to double the, a brilliant actor or you know can, can a stunt man perform um, to, to a certain character and so I, I I understood that if we cast an actor, he was going to then be doubled, and you know this would be a big challenge. Um, and go- so I met Gordon and had a few sessions with him actually, and really liked him and could see he was capable, um, and just worked a lot on the stuff that wasn't the stunts actually, and just the character of him and creating something that was very grounded and still and minimal really, and you know didn't want him to be over egging the the evil factor of this character, but just keeping him really as minimal as possible in a way. And, and I, I thought he did a fantastic job. I think that was, what was quite fun about it was obviously it was kind of like that. It was one of the weird occasions where obviously it, it, normally it's like across a season that we're all playing relay with the actors. You know, it's like, Oh, here, here, here I've done work on the guys with episode one. Now you go off and you take them even further with episodes two, three, and four. And then Zav gets them for six and he does his thing. And then, you know, you meet them back in yeah. the end. But with Cole, what was interesting was that, you know, we were both in a way, cause like obviously you were setting him up as a yeah. character. And then I was having to take him through to yeah, his yeah. demise. Then as we were yeah, shooting yeah. The, the, the fight sequence and that I found it yeah. quite fun because I was getting to see what he was doing with you yeah. and then attributing that to when he was threatening the kids and threatening uh, Dilsa, the sister, uh, played by Jem. Mm. Yeah. And then and then basically then get into that point where I remember we were discussing it with Gordon and, you know, we were both kind of like, you know, wanting to respect the work that you'd done with him on it. Mm. And so we talked about this idea of he shouldn't show emotion yeah. until he has his face really fucked up with a knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, yeah. you know, so like that's almost the one time when he just yeah. explodes. So he's been quite restrained yeah. quite, you know, uh, yeah, quite calm up yeah. to that point. But then once he feels like he's being ripped up by Elliot, that's yeah. when he loses his shit. Um, and I remember when we were doing the, um, the the bit when he gets shot and we did the artery blast on the neck. Amazing. Um, the Tony, <laughs> Tony, who was like, you know, in charge of the SFX for that, that sequence. Obviously, Alex Gunn was in charge of the SFX across the mm. whole show. But Tony, who was stepping yeah. in for, for that, for that, who was like his second in command, who was doing that 
specific neck squib uh, gag with the compressor yeah. very kind of shogun assassin sort of approach yeah. to it you know <laughs> um he did he did a bunch of tests and he was like oh this is it that like sort of like half level and he showed me and it, it looked good it looked pretty you know powerful i was like oh tony can you uh, can you just show me what it's like at the maximum level please <laughs> yeah. and then um, and then he yeah. did that and I, I remember he came up to me afterwards he's like was that a little bit too much i was like no it's perfect now let's 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 go again um yeah, but it was just yeah, this yeah. incredible incredibly That's visceral great, thing and um i got to have loads of fun i mean we shot that sequence and like it, it was it was probably one of the most challenging ones because I think we didn't really, again, that sequence, we didn't have a whole lot of time to do the fight of it because yeah, we had yeah. a lot of drama in between and we were balancing our time with the kids and everything else, trying to get their stuff shot as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. And you know, without, so, you know, shots like the kids reacting to the ax coming through the wall. You know, I, I just put a piece of tape on the wall and then said, right, and on three, you're going to turn and look at the piece of tape. Then we mm. get them out and then we just have the axe plummet through the wall with no one there. Mm. So, you know, it was just kind of, you, you're kind of having to do like double setups for a lot of things to keep the kids, you oh, know, calm and, yeah, and yeah. not get traumatized by what they were, oh, what was yeah. actually going to be presented on screen. Yeah. And, and so we found that we were in like a real tight spot when it came to the fight itself. And then when we finally got out into the corridor, it was just like, it was a testament really to, you know, um, Chope, uh, Gordon, but then also um, another one who gets a little bit of, as a bit of an unsung hero, but Menz, who is uh, yeah. Chope's uh, stunt double, you know, who takes all the real big knocks. Mm. So, you know, Chope, thank God, we were able to give him like 90% of the choreography himself. But, you know, when he's getting yanked off the table and slammed onto the floor, that's men's you know when he, when he gets picked and picked up and launched across a room that's men's um <laughs> but you know um they were they worked so hard across it when he's thrown into the corner of the wall that's uh, one of my favorite yeah yeah yeah. Impacts. yeah that was men's again yeah <laughs> but you know it was it was fun and it's like you pull you pull little reference points out of different things so for me the arrival of Ed when he comes, when he arrives and the elevator opens, you just see that um, the, the the real, you know, long lens tight close-ups of the gun firing and then mm. the rack focus. Mm. I mean, Die Hard. You know, that, that was yeah. the ending of Die Hard. That's exactly where we got it from, you know? And it was just like, it was like this cool moment where we were like, oh, we get to introduce Ed now looking the, the coolest human yeah. being could look in a trench coat in an elevator <laughs> holding a revolver. Um, so yeah, Lucian, fair play to him, came in for the day and did three shots with us and then left. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> One of my favorite bits, uh, little pieces of performance of Gordon as Cole is just when he's being shot in the shoulder, falls down and he's just sitting in the... Uh, the crux of the uh, corridor and he just pulls his glasses off kind of like he just like removed because I remember saying I wanted to give him glasses but you didn't want glasses for him to fight to have to wear them yeah. through the fight yeah, little silly things you have to find out a way how can a character remove their glasses before the fight and it just was a really really like perfect kind of like the way he kind of just takes them off looking really pissed off that he's been like <laughs> but that's the thing it is it's like we let you have this chance to kind of design this character from the ground up and then yeah. it's like we were we, we were looking at him we were like oh when he gets shot in that shoulder his yeah. baseball cap better fly the fuck yeah, off his yeah, head yeah. and then and then when he and when he's when he's when he's like you know sat there bleeding in his arm it's like maybe he could take his glasses off yeah, yeah. so so yeah. We, we 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 made it up as if one of them had cracked and, sp- and broken in the fall then so yeah we were just talking about blood this time, and blood is quite a, a big thing in this show and squibs and I know all three of us are like really kind of obsessed with and excited about squibs and practical effects and, and blood flying out around 
And so we, we very much balanced like a, a lot of in-camera squibs with, you know, some visual effects ones and explosions. But uh, and I think there was a little bit of a weird competition or, or kind of an, a mutually um, supportive uh, excitement competition of who could kind of pull off the best squibs. And actually, when I saw Gareth's um, cold neck squib, I was like, that's the best one. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm really proud of the uh, one in episode two, which is the cow gun um, squib. <laughs> <laughs> that looked amazing i remember when you showed us you sent me that on a whatsapp message and i was like oh that looks fucking beautiful yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it sounds horrible but i mean it's such fun to do this stuff especially when you have got sticky stuff lying in the air and, and uh um it was also you know we, we designed this cow gun which you know was a sort of half invented based on a, what a cow gun does and a little bit you know we added matted hair stuck to the end of it and and it was it was a contraption that you could pull a trigger and it would blow out some air that would just kind of go um, enough. Um, but but we'd looked at you know references like Deer Hunter for instance, and, and we wanted a very particular kind of reaction that would sort of spout out as the guy fell down horizontally. Yeah. And you see you see you know you see the front angle of the performer and and, and the cow gun put to his head and the start of the puff of the the air, and then we cut to the back of a of of one of them. Um, Jude Poyer's stuntman who had this incredible rig, the special effects rig up the front of him, which I'd never seen before, but really is like a, an air pressure cannon, like a load of wires. His whole face is like encased in a, a, a load of tubing with a, which projects the blood out. And of course, so we got it all set up and like a lot of things, they never quite go to plan. And they're like, Gareth's saying, can you turn it up for the max? You know, everyone's really excited. You're up against it because you're trying to put practical effects in your schedule, which is tough. And um, Alex Gunn, who was the special effects supervisor, fantastic guy, did, did amongst many other things, did like Rambo um, 4, which probably has, you know, quite a lot of body explosions. Yeah. And um, he was excited about it. And, and the first take, typically, you know, we got the angle wrong. So when, when the squib went off, the blood sort of like, it didn't really register. And there's this great kind of disappointment because we ran out of time. So it was take two that he adjusted the settings and we had this perfect kind of, initial explosion and then this kind of spouting effect as you felt down sideways. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, CG blood splatter, you know, it has this, has this place, but I think, yeah, I think it yeah. depends. I think if you're augmenting stuff that you've tried to do in camera, it can really work. Yeah. So mm. like, you know, when we did like, I think when we did the, 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 the campsite sequence when we shot that, we, we quite often would do uh, like a clean take first to get the, yeah. the thing working. And then we do one take with the actual squibs so yeah. you'd have reference. So you're kind of pulling off the real stuff of it and you'd have yeah. clothing and textures and blood interaction. So I think when you when you do both, in a way, you get, you get to have uh, enough then so that even with CG, yeah. it's more augmenting what's there as mm. opposed to entirely creating from scratch then i think yeah. that that's intended to be the thing that worked better i think across what we were doing then and they have a lighting reference as well which is really yeah hmm. so I, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of last things about uh ep3 and the and the cold resolution to that as well before i go back into the the end of ep2 um it just just real quick i mean there's the Shaun of the dead reference uh corin which i'm guessing yeah. is yeah 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 absolutely no i mean uh, um well and there's a few little Easter eggs in in uh throughout the show, little cameos here and there, and that I, I, you know, there's this sort of um kind of legend of uh, George Romero and um, Sam Raimi kind of putting each other's 
uh, and Wes Craven, sorry, you know, mm. like um, in Nightmare on Elm Street, they're watching Evil Dead on, on the TV and then in Evil Dead 2, he puts a, a Freddy glove hanging in the basement. I knew I wanted the security guarding in the very kind of nodding a little bit to Die Hard, the sort of, the sort of uh, little Nakatomi Plaza kind of um, yeah. security guard. Um watching something and originally I was going to put Night of the Living Dead which you know gets used many 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 times and partly because of the right yes public domain sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. and then I kind of thought um, well wouldn't it be great if I could get Shaun of the Dead and, and, and you know get, get Edgar's work in, in this show in a little moment and then actually genuinely sort of narratively whatever he was watching I wanted it to be very engaging that the security guard would be so engaged in the moment of whatever it was that he Elliot would be able to sneak in and be able to kind of like choke him and make him unconscious and so um, once I looked at Shaun of the Dead I thought this was a really nice moment that kind of it features you know Simon Pegg and Dylan and, and uh, it's the moment just before the zombies kind of burst through the window of the Winchester and uh, also on the soundtrack you know it's you can hear a little lead in of the dialogue as you enter that scene. So yeah, a little nod to, to Edgar. But it's interesting that also you got him. It's in the scene. There's obviously you know, Dylan's getting attacked from behind, and then yeah. literally two yeah. seconds later, then Elliot's attacking <laughs> yeah. the security guard from behind. That's what I mean. It, it yeah. kind of actually improved the scene by having that scene in it. Um, just just yeah. because it had this little pause, everything goes silent, and then and then there's an attack, and the, and then there's an attack. <laughs> so yeah, a little mis- misdirect from it. But he doesn't. He doesn't uh, rip the security guard in half, which was a disappointment. Um, I have to say, but you know, in the director's cut, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was origi- yeah. he was originally going to bash the security guard in with a torch, and it just felt really too brutal for this poor security guard. He's having a really good yeah. night on a Friday night, eating his eating his burger and, and yeah. milkshake, and watching Shaun of the Dead. So just be like, <laughs> ITV two. it's not his fault um but you know laugh laugh fight's interesting as well because elliot gets his ass kicked yeah which was which was important to us yeah Uh, again it's that thing of it being like we we had already set up elliot as this guy that you know blitzed through a pub full of like albanian gangsters um and then you know endured and survived through the fight with len um, and then the next time we see him in a sort of in, in, in a in a in something of a perilous situation with the cold fight, he's not the Terminator. He's not just gonna yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, he's not the Terminator. <laughs> um, he's gonna have to fight his way through the situation. But you know he has his ass handed to him, and he's gonna lose. He's about to die. Like you know, like you yeah. know, let's be honest. But if it hadn't been for the fact that Ed turns up, he's gonna die in that situation mm-hmm. in that set of circumstances. And we felt that was kind of more interesting because. I've always liked heroes that have a vulnerability to them that are not perfect, that are not just, you know, punching, kicking machines that get through everything, that they get beat down, that they get hurt. So, like, you know, even when we were messing around with, like, Eco and the boys out in Indonesia, you know, put Eco through the ringer. You know, yeah, like when yeah. you see the last shot of him in the raid too, I remember, you know, very specifically when we were discussing with uh, the, the makeup department, you know, let's catalogue how many times he gets punched in the previs and what that yeah. would do to his face because we want to see how broken he is by the end of the film but we still want to recognise him and so yeah. you know it was that, you know, knowing that you can break down that, that lead character it makes the audience feel that there are stakes there it feels like there's a tension there and, mm-hmm. and, and so that was really important to us that Chope, uh, Elliot sorry wouldn't just have like an easy ride for every fight sequence he gets put into that it, it's, yeah. it's a full on endurance test and Chopin as well, it's worth mentioning. I mean, he was obviously brilliant, but 
doing all of this, his own stunts, you know, in these sequences, it really exhausted him out. I mean, he's doing this throughout the whole show of nine episodes, which was shooting for, I don't know what it was, six months or whatever, plus all the rehearsals. I mean, there was no other cast member who did that as well as, you know, heavy emotional performance. So he was genuinely, you know, just absolutely, especially by the time we got to episode nine, just like, (laughs) <laughs> holding it together I mean you know <laughs> real trooper which is why in episode 9 he just has a nice big sit down and a cup of tea and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much it um, yeah. uh, but of course one thing he's not in is the end of episode 2 or the the attack and the, the, the massacre at the traveller camp as well uh, for obvious reasons because if he was there then the show would be over very quickly <laughs> yeah. he'd, he'd have Sean Wallace bang to rights but um, you know can you, can you talk about that sequence and you know I, I, Gareth <sighs> I, 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 did you do that as well and with, yeah, with Corn so how, how did that, that work was, out that was, that was lumbered into the block one of shooting because I think we 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 condensed everything in that campsite because that campsite obviously you know you can't you can't just pitch up and put up all those caravans in that one location and then pull it down and put it back up again whenever we decided to revisit it across the show and so we knew we were doing it in ep one we knew we were doing it in ep two and then we had a small bit in ep five as well yeah so um we shot it all as one block um into into block one then so the we first, did um, and that was thing that you shot wasn't it it was no it was it was the it was the first was it the first action sequence? I think it might have been the first action sequence we did, but it was um, it was about three weeks into the shoot, yeah. um, and then and there Christmas, was I remember it was freezing. It was cold. it was just before Christmas. It was fucking freezing. It was absolutely <laughs> horrible. And, the, and the, um, mud, the mud was literally two foot deep mud. It was it was growing. Yeah, the mud was getting thicker and thicker and bigger and bigger. Basically, um, yeah, it was horrid. <laughs> it was. <laughs> It was a beautiful, beautiful surroundings, actually. That field in Kent was stunning. It was really beautiful. Mm. But it was an absolute ball ache to service as a film, as a film location because, you know, we'd have to get down at this, this big, steep banking hill. We had all the gators traveling crew and cast up and down the hill the entire time. Um, it was cold during the day, but fuck me, it got freezing at night mm. and we were shooting nights for a lot of it. Um, and, have you, you know, feeling back in your toes yet? <laughs> One of my toes is still a bit numb, actually. Um, it, it was, it was, it was borderline. It was just on the cusp of frostbite, I think. But for about yeah, since we shot it, my toes don't feel quite the same. If I get my foot cold, I can feel two of the toes go numb um, immediately as a result of it. Um, but you know, it, we were, we were just, we were just there. It was just in the in the middle of the mud shooting this this mad mad sequence. But um, you know, it was. I, I, we were really, we were really fortunate. We did a big previs design for that sequence again, um, and obviously this was kind of like the blitz. This was like the the guys thought that they were being prepared by you know making these Molotov cocktails and sort of gathering the, the troops, so to speak. But they had no idea that that attack was going to come right there, right that at that time. And so it's it's almost just like the like your Corin was saying earlier, it's the might of the Wallace organization just descending upon this 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 traveler site, this traveler community. Mm. Um, and so when we designed it, obviously we had the previs, we had everything else, and you know um, before we shot anything, and this is like one of the things that was like so important in order to kind of make sure that we could do these sequences. A on a TV schedule and budget um, was to sit down with myself, uh, Liam Locke, who's my AD, uh, Matt, who's the DP, and then Jude, who's the stunt coordinator, and the four of us just spent 
hours at the end of every day, like spending uh, like, you know, three or four hours a night just going through every single shot of the previs, creating little strips of them and saying, on Monday, we need to get shots one to ten done of that mm-hmm. sequence. On Tuesday, we're going to need to have a three hour pre-call in order to set up for like the burn effect. And that'll be the first <laughs> thing we do that day. And then we move on. We grab some smaller bits in order to claw back the amount of shots we need to get. And we would go through it forensically on a shot by shot basis, figuring <laughs> out. And Liam was like the driving force of that. He was incredible because he would just go through it. And be like, you know, because Liam's had this experience of working on so many different TV shows, so many different films, um, you know, big, big budget stuff and then smaller scale stuff where he could bring all of his experience and say, we're going to need two, three hours to get that one shot. And, and I'd be the naive, horrible, pissy director saying, I reckon we can get that in an hour, an hour and a half. And he's like, no, nah, it'll be three hours. It'll be two, two, three hours minimum. No, da, da, da. Cut the set and it's two, three hours. I came to visit you during the sort of middle of that shoot. And I remember kind of excitedly getting dropped off at the station, picked up, getting to the field, then getting on these four by fours and just like getting into this absolute, it was like apocalypse now. It was like arriving at this set. The mud was two two foot deep. There was like boards everywhere. And there's Gareth and his team moving from like each of his sort of jigsaw pieces from one shot to another. And this whole crew of, I don't know, 60 people maneuvering through this mud to get to another caravan to do the, I mean, it was just like, I can't believe it. It was, it was, it was painful. And and here's the thing, like, so testament to, to Liam scheduling, um, he, he got sick, like within the first oh, two God, weeks yeah. of shooting. And so um, we had to go to that location and I, I wasn't able to have Liam with me because you know, he needed to <laughs> recuperate. Um, and so uh, we had uh, Simon Aguirre come over and, and, and work with us. We had a couple other ADs also join us because, you know, you, you were kind of whoever was who, who was, who would be available at short notice. And thank God Simon came in and he did the, the lion's share of, of of that that shoot with me but we were following Liam's schedule and even though Liam wasn't there that schedule we stuck to it rigidly and it's what got us through that sequence it really did um and so we were we were really fortunate in that um and it was yeah it was it was horrible to shoot um you know it's like it's little things like you 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 start to realize oh for that last big explosion with the all the caravans going off yeah, we needed to be offset and and leave the SFX department to have like three hours in order to set up something like that because it's so important to get that stuff done, a right, b safe, uh, well a safe, b right, and yeah. um, you know yeah. what I mean. And so so you know there there are moments where you're like, we just have to stand back, we have to just stand back and 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 wait it out, and and you know every minute of that you're looking at your watch thinking. Are we going to have time to get the next shot? That's after that. We're going to have time to grab the other inserts that we want to get for for this sequence. Um, but you know, it was a it was a monster sequence to do, um, and that was probably I think that was I think that was probably the first action sequence we did because yeah. we came back and just before we finished for Christmas, we shot the Len fight. So we did <laughs> we did the camps. It was like it was it was insane. It was like within within the space of like six weeks or something or seven weeks. No, it would have been less than I mean, five maybe five weeks or six weeks before we broke for Christmas. We had shot, you know, a huge amount of drama. Then we shot all of the campsite sequence, all of the traveler site stuff for the other episodes, and the land fight, 
And then as soon as we got back after Christmas, it was like, right, now let's do a pub fight. So it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was madness. It was just, it was just a constant, constant stream of things. But going back to that thing that we were talking about earlier, where you were saying, Karin, about like the idea of like, it's that thing of, there were so many, so many examples of us talking about, oh, I remember that scene. We had a day to do it in. We had a yeah. day to do it yeah. in. That Lale flashback was, it was a day yeah, as yeah. well in itself. And yeah. that Christ. was brutal. Yeah. You just like, yeah. you, you know, we, I remember we shot that in Southall. In in, yeah. in in the old sugar puffs factory, <laughs> so it's the old sugar puffs factory. This gigantic, brutalist building. It does puffs. smell of sugar puffs. It does, yeah. So that that's the weird thing. You think it would smell of a cooking dead husband, but it was actually quite nice. It was just sugar puffs. Yeah, monster. But like, we were there, and it was it was it was like you know it was that thing of going mm. to that location, going to South of Sea, and that that element that that space, and then. <laughs> thankfully having someone like Matt Gant there with his eye and his vision for how to kind of like turn around mm. locations and make them look like something you've never seen before and then being able to say right can you turn this Sugar Puffs factory in yeah. Southall to make it look like we're in Kurdistan please and it's a war-torn yeah. backdrop and then cut to <laughs> you know me turning up one day and just seeing rubble everywhere yeah. sort of signage and burnt decay twisted up broken vehicles overturned stuff fires and stuff from the SFX department it was a real massive, massive effort, and so yeah, yeah. it was a uh, it was it was a hell of a day of filming to be to be concise. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, that's amazing! Uh, any chances of the Honey Monster making a cameo? Yeah, <laughs> I think was that that'd be great. Yeah, tell them about the honey, Sean. That'd have been that'd have been interesting. <laughs> you know what? We, we missed we we missed a trick there, Karen, mate. They should have been yeah. packaging all the sort of money from the drugs deals in in yeah. honey in yeah, sugar yeah, puffs yeah. boxes, not yeah. fruity loops. Yeah, oh. <laughs> the the carefully carefully designed fruity loops. Yeah, <laughs> I'm guessing I'm I'm, I'm guessing no box of cereal in the history of TV has been designed more carefully. You've than got fruity a, loops. I mean, the amount of design and discussions about the look of the logo, the, the content of the Fruity Loops boxes and how they then get packaged, how many of them we need and how much heroin we need and to, to put in the boxes and then to pack the boxes into uh, brown boxes as well and then better set them all on fire. And they actually all had fake money in because we were hoping that as they burnt, the fake money is going to cascade off into the air. But with all the rain and stuff, we didn't get a dollar bill. So there was, <laughs> millions of fake dollars in those boxes on fire. So. <laughs> oh, good old Fruity Loops. Um, and the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, as well, apart from the fact that you know the the Traveller Camp massacre is an, another really interesting idea in terms of it's something Sean does is really unsympathetic. Uh, you know, ep, ep one and ep two, he's full blown psycho- psychopathy almost. It was yeah. really. I mean, when I when I sort of, you know, was processing the script, it, there was a sort of like, oh, is Sean just a real unlikable cold character that we're that we're not going to root for, and, and yet he's got to uh, lead the show through a number of episodes. Um, and I and, and credit to Joe Cole, you know, because we you, you sometimes have an idea of what a character is going to be, and then an actor surprises you and and obviously seeing what Joe did in, in Gareth's pilot episode with the with the just the sort of slight eccentricity brought to him and uh, and the choice of even his accent. It was just yeah. all 
it was for me it was refreshing and it but it all made sense um and he managed to pull off i think ultimately well okay we're not talking beyond four but you do feel the human in sean and you feel ultimately sorry for him like um Mm. even though he does these sort of pretty terrible things I, yeah. think, I think the key to it was this thing that what Sean brought, what Sean, what Joe brought, brought to that, those sequences, is that even in the first one, you know, he's not looking down that building and down that rope to that kid hanging upside down and 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 sort of reveling in that kid's misery or or pain, you know, when um, when the kid says like you know like you know don't kill me please don't kill me. Like, Sean's response isn't, like, one of sort of venom. He's not, like, you know, snarling, spitting out, like, a, a bad line to him and stuff like that. It was, what else can I do? And it was almost sort of, like, a tragic sort of, like, thing where he's like, you know, I don't have a fucking choice in this. It's not like he's enjoying the moment at all. He's a, he's somebody who's in search of somewhere to kind of throw his anger and somewhere to throw his rage and somewhere to show his throw his grief and so when it came to like the final shot of that campsite of joe looking at the thing burn around him i remember talking to him specifically because like and this kind of goes back to that thing of like the the action not purely being like a visceral thing not purely being like spectacle but for it to always say something about the the plot moving forward but then also the characters and the arcs that they go on Mm. so that when you get to the end of that campsite it, you know, we we check in with four people very specifically, and they're our key characters that are going to be part of that that world and part of that story. And it's, you know, it, it's it's it, there are story beats and character beats within that sequence. So you see Ed as the protective uncle stopping Sean from storming into a caravan, sending in a Wallace guard who then comes out with a knife in his neck. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and he saved Sean's life as a result of that, of of being more experienced, of of holding him back when Sean would have gone in quite recklessly. But then, you know, at the end of that sequence, when the whole thing explodes and it just, you know, everything's decimated and there's nobody left to shoot and nobody left to kill, you got Ed reflecting on what Sean has become, like looking at him and seeing the the reaction in Sean, who's looking on in wonder at at what he's achieved, at, at what he realizes he can do. You know, and then in Sean, you're seeing him, you know, almost like a release valve has been turned. And so, you know, it's almost like he's let out some of that pent up rage and aggression now. But, you know, he, he, again, he's in awe of what he's achieved. And then you got Marion who's looking from her car, you know, with her, you know, looking up at her son and being like, you know, oh, she can see him now stood there in what, what, what might have been Finn 20, 30 years ago when he was fighting his way to the top. And then, mm. you know, the tragedy is Mark out in the, the tree line looking back at everything that's been taken from him. And so... Mm you've got a very specific and purposeful checking in with these four characters mm-hmm. to see how they all emotionally respond to that big set piece you just watched. So yeah. it just validates the action. It validates its its place within the episode so it doesn't feel like, oh, let's end just on a piece of spectacle. Let's see what that's going to do to our characters going forward then. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I mean, Sean's really interesting also in that he's, you know, yeah, he's lashing out. He's very angry as well. But I think there's a, a large part of his action certainly in the first few episodes is motivated by this idea of him trying to be his father's son mm. and trying to almost put himself in Finn's shoes and go, well, what would my dad have done? He would have done mm. this because this is, you know, this is what would be expected of him. Um, yeah. And playing a role that I don't think is really entirely him. 
And I think mm-hmm. we see, you know, they're, they're, he's capable of, of great cruelty and, and great acts, you know, of, of almost evil. And again, we can't get into it in, in terms yeah. of specifics. But if you, if you can just speak to that, that the idea that, you know, he's not, there's something else underneath the surface of, of that character. Um, I think, yeah, I think like, you know, fundamentally, it's that thing of like, we, we learn into the sort of the psychological trauma of, of what is what his father has put him under. Um, mm. That we understand that this is not a traditional upbringing of a young man, you know what I mean. So he's oh Christ, broken yeah. down by the people around him. He's broken down by nurture, um, you know, and a very unusual sense of nurture from both mum and dad. Um, you know, it's not a normal family unit to, to to be a part of. And the fact is that the only one who's actually maintained any kind of sanity is the one person that's left it behind. It's Jacqueline. Um, and she represents normality, and so you know. And and, and uh, one of my favorite moments, actually, and is is in I think it's in episode four, is when Sean goes to see Jacqueline as she's working at the hospital yes. and trying to convince her to come to the dinner because it's the it's the most normal <laughs> scene like of the entire TV show. show. No, yeah. but not but not not normal as a TV show, but normal in terms of it's it's yeah. real life and it's and it feels more authentic. And it's like you got these these, these this relationship between a brother and sister there where they bounce off each other, they spark off each other, and then yeah. you get. Every, those those little pockets of humanity that kind of like pepper throughout Sean are allow the audience to have some kind of empathy. We don't have to sort of side with everything he does. We don't have to agree with every decision mm-hmm. he makes on a moral level. We don't have to say it's okay for you to go off and, and shoot a bunch <laughs> of travelers at a campsite. It's okay for yeah. you to hang a kid upside down off a building and burn him to death. You don't have to say any of that. But what we can do is understand his psychological complexity and what we can do is get a little bit under the hood and realize that he's a product of his upbringing he's a product yeah. of the people who have brought mm-hmm. him into this world and, and have brought him into a world which is consumed by violence and so what do you expect him to become other than that and what I yeah. love about what Joe's character goes the Sean's character goes through as a journey throughout the show without giving anything away and talking about future episodes but I know in six that kind of starts to get crystallized this sense of him finding a sort of like a without again without spoiling, but that sense of him finding a, a, a moral compass that he maybe didn't know existed, you know, a, a, a code beneath the code sort of thing. It, it starts to become more and more present, and he starts to become his own man, um, and starts to step away from the shadow of what he thinks his father would have expected yeah. him to do. Yeah, um, yeah and so yeah. It's a, a interesting. Uh, you pointed out that scene with Jacqueline because I, I I'm probably wrong in this, but it felt to me like that was the first time he'd smiled. Yeah. yeah, that smiley cracks as well. But it's such a kind of like golden, potent smile, and he uses it at certain times in the show as Sean, but also Joe uses it, and it just—it's amazing transformation that his face goes through. Um, yeah, it really warms you to him in that one moment. It's just him looking at his sister, and you kind of suddenly forgive him for everything he's done. He's like just a look, his sister's <laughs> younger brother, you know, trying to get the yeah. family to have dinner together. <laughs> Precisely. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, because we we kind of started this episode um, at the at the end of Ep Four, so I think it's only right in the Tarantino style to end at the beginning with the death, the murder of Finn Wallace, uh, which sets the whole thing in motion. And uh, you know, Gareth, I don't know if you can you can talk about that, you know, because uh, I I kind of knew that Colm Mini wasn't in the show for long, but I was still a little bit surprised <laughs> when you shot him in the head twice in the first. <laughs> Five minutes or so. I barely got to meet the guy. He was such a lovely person when I met him, but I, I had like maybe like two days with him. That was it. We had like yeah. we had the day outside of the the apartment block, 
and then the yeah. day inside where we killed him off and I was like <laughs> it was the weirdest thing because it was like you know, I'd looked forward to meeting him for so long yeah. <laughs> you know because I was a big fan it's like like for, and for me it's like you know a lot of people come to it they were sort of like they were always mentioning oh my god I love him in Star Trek I love him in this that and the other and for me it was always the commitments so for me like my big sort of like my big personal geek out was like you know it's, oh my god it's the guy from the commitments yeah. you know what I mean and I couldn't wait to meet him <laughs> in, in that respect I grew up watching that film um, but he he was great. He was a gent. He was an absolute gent throughout the entire process. I mean, you know, um, I, I didn't get to work with him for too long, obviously. Uh, Corin probably spent more time with him yeah, yeah. Did, than, than I got to. That's, that actually goes across the board for a lot of the cast, weirdly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. Oh, you mean but, in episode um, six when he comes back to life as zombie <laughs> Finn Wallace and goes into the rampage? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. No spoilers, yeah. <laughs> But, well, um, I got to work but, with him in flashbacks. You you only got to work with him in the life that he actually lived on screen. Yeah, Everything exactly. And then I barely it. fucking showed him as well. That's the thing. <laughs> we, we shot him from behind, from a wide, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and then um, and we concealed his face in the peephole because we wanted it to be the Darren wouldn't necessarily recognize him straight away. I, I yeah. think, like, what was fun about that sequence, that whole opening, was the idea of I knew that we would have a big long stretch of that opening scene after the the thing with the rope where it would play largely wordless that it would be just purely about sounds and and tension building and uh you know the framing of it and 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 playing up the idea of how loud this elevator engine would be mm. and it would just cut through the tension so every time you think you're you're, you're calm it's like Dong, and then scream mm. into life so we were playing around with the tension a lot and i i want to give a a, sh- a massive shout out because I-, I haven't had the opportunity to do it quite often so I'll, I'll take it now but um, Sarah my editor um, who-, who worked on this show because previously and-, and-, and prior to this uh, I've always edited my own work so when it came to the films I've done I've always just been the editor of the drama as well as the action and for, yeah. for, for my work across this show um, I decided to just edit the action and then leave her take control of the, the drama then across you know every episode that I did then uh, so like episodes one and, and five and she did an amazing job on it because you know it, I, I, I can't help but still shoot with the idea of how it would yeah. look in the edit and it yeah. was astonishing to me how she would pick all the right shots and pick all the right timings and the rhythms of it. And she would cut the fat out where the fat didn't need to be there and tighten up those edits. And And she did an amazing, amazing uh, piece of work on that sequence. So, you know, as much as we had fun, you know, figuring out all these different shots and storyboarding it, da 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 um, she was the one who had to kind of sift through all of that and find all the little bits of gold and the little bits of nuggets in there, you know? <laughs> so she, she did an incredible job of piecing that together. Likewise, you know, a future episode, but the sequence in the, the, the toilet in episode five, you know what I yeah. mean? Like we, we, yeah. we shot a load of coverage for that and, and, and she, she turned that into something you know, exceptional. I was really, really happy with the work that she'd done across it. So yeah, Fantastic. massive shout out to her. Indeed, indeed. And guys, a good note in which to end. Uh, people listening to this at home will have had no idea of the the <laughs> the hell I've put these guys through tonight. Uh, we're, we're doing this very, very late. Uh, and so I'm very, very grateful for you giving up your time. But guys, I want to, in the meantime, thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank yeah. you, Chris. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Chris. And that was Gareth Evans and Corin Hardy talking about episodes one to four of Gangs of London. Hope you enjoyed it. Next up, I'll be talking to Gareth about episode five, which is one of the most incredible pieces of sustained action filmmaking in years. Hold on tight. It's going to get messy. 
And once again, I just wanted to thank you all for subscribing to the Spoiler Specials subscription channel. It really means a lot to us and means that we have the freedom, not always the time, but the freedom to do things like this. Uh, do stick around for more Gangs of London spoiler specials, a John Wick retro spoiler special with Chad Tehelski, the pod team delving into Hamilton, and much, 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 much more. Right, that is it for me. I'm going to leave you now with the soothing strains of Panty Wetter by Trey Songs. What, what's that? Oh, I see. I've been informed we, we can't afford it. Um, such a shame. Oh well, thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.